Welcome to The Reading Room. This is Room 27. In this programme, we bring you the second half of The Reading Room Live, recorded at the Lincoln Performing Arts Centre, where I interviewed writer, actor, comedian and presenter Robert Llewellyn. And after sorting a microphone stand malfunction, I started by asking about what else? Red Dwarf. That's very good. Good position. Jolly good. So I need to bring that like there. You got it? I'm going to tighten my knobs. Here we go. I did. We knew it. that started early. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, we'll talk to the new book in a, in a little while, but I think it's, it's fair to say that uh, most people would recognise you most as the mechanoid from Red Dwarf. So we'll go straight to a Twitter question from Mr. Oblivious. Is Mr. Oblivious in tonight? No. <laughs> okay, uh, I'd like to know if the rumours of the Red Dwarf return are true. Well, yeah, as we can see from the wonderful picture behind us, they are true. Um, we just, in fact, only a couple of weeks ago, finished the very last final day's recording, uh, which was a, a lot of all the bits that we didn't do. But we finished most of it in February. It is broadcast on Dave in the UK in uh, the end of September, early October. We're not sure of an exact date yet, and uh, there's six new episodes uh, with the original cast and recorded in front of an audience, so very traditional, as the audience that saw it uh, classified it, classic Red Dwarf. I see. So are there any fears about coming back together? Yeah, it's been a little while now. You had the, the a little while has been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so are there, any, are there any fears? Do you have any... any... I mean, obviously, if, it, if people absolutely hate it, it would be very depressing. And I think we were nervous. Certainly the first night we recorded it in front of the audience, I was very anxious and nervous, mainly because I couldn't remember anything. I knew I had to some sort of scene to do where I walked on with a rubber head on. And it's, once you've got, once your head's that at the temperature that your head gets to when you've got that mask on, it's very difficult to remember even why you're breathing, <laughs> let alone what you're meant to say. So, um, uh, but so that was a fairly terrifying moment. I thought, God, if we go through this these scenes tonight and no one laughs, and then they clap very sort of sadly at the end, it would be very depressing. But thankfully, they laughed. And so, I mean, I think it's got a chance of not being some boring old farts trying to be funny in a really, with a really bad script and rubbish costumes. I mean, it's brilliantly written. The writing is fantastic. The, the, the sort of themes continue of the, of the original. And, you know, it has been... Uh, even I have been involved in it for 24 years, and I'm still called the new boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, your, your relationship with, with the other main characters, Danny and, and Craig, and we, we've got a Twitter question uh, from... Danny, John Jules, uh, <laughs> why are you such a git? <laughs> that just shows what, how close we were like. Well, he's I mean, the, the camaraderie. It's a very, I don't know why I'm such a git, Dan. I don't know. I just was born that way. <laughs> Can't help it. Don't be gittist. <laughs> um, we do, I mean, it is, uh, that's really the, the, the thing that keeps me involved in it is that the, we're actually very good mates and we see each other regularly anyway. So it's not like we hadn't seen each other. We're, we're actually very close and it is just the most fun. It's, it reminds me of being back at school when I was naughty. Uh, but, and, and I'd always be the one that got caught, and my clever mates would do the really bad things and get away with it, and that's Craig and Dan. You know, it's always me that gets caught. But it's, it's sort of like that. Chris is the sort of SWAT prefect that, that is in concern that we do everything right and follow the rules, and Craig is, you know, Craig. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it is... It, 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 I mean, I have literally been on all fours on the floor laughing and I can't see <laughs> because of some silly thing that's happened. So, you know, there is, it's enormous fun working together. 
I see. I, I'm not going to ask you for any spoilers. I've, I've done a bit of research. Most interviews you get asked for, for, for spoilers or what's going on with, yeah. the, with, with the plot. Now, in, in the internet age, I mean, you've been, you've been tweeting uh, a lot you know, so, since you've been here. How did you stop the audience doing that? Is it done on trust? I mean, I think it is, and it's quite interesting because that was certainly a fear of the producers that uh, if we had a live... You know, when we last recorded a live uh, show of Red Dwarf, it was 1998. There was no Facebook, no Twitter, no Google. Uh, none of those things even existed. So there was no, uh, you know, people had web pages. <laughs> I, I had a web page. It was really good. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that, that, that stuff wasn't there. And we thought, gosh, people can actually just film it on their phones while we're recording it and just, just load it up to YouTube 10 minutes later and that. Though. No one has. And, I mean, boy, have there been people looking. Uh, no <laughs> one's done anything. And, it's, and I think it is a trust. I think that what would happen is that anyone who did that they, they would know that the, the wrath of the internet would land upon them, you know, that they, it wouldn't be popular. Yeah. It would be, you know, that posting spoilers is considered, you know, very, very wrong, yeah. which is good, and, and nobody has, and it's fantastic. I mean, we begged and pleaded with them not to, but actually, I don't think anybody would have done anyway, interestingly. And you, you're currently updating your audio book, uh, The Man in the Rubber Mask. Yes. I got it right there. Yeah, well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and are you, are you up to series seven now? Now, is that all from memories, or are you, are you a diarist? I am a diarist, but I uh, a very private diary, and I must remember to delete it before I get run over by a bus. But um, uh, so there, are, there are. A f I do have diaries from that era, but they, when I read through them, I go, oh, I barely talked about Red Dwarf because it was just a thing that took over while I, while we were recording Red Dwarf. There's really no other existence. You know, there's a curry late at night with Craig and then sleep and then get up really early and have a rubber head stuck on. You know, there's not a lot of not a lot of time to sit there luxuriously tapping into my diary. So. But I can re recall things, and there are certain events that took place with series of Red Dwarf that coincided with pregnancies and childbirth. That helped you remember. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, not me being pregnant. <laughs> birth. That would be very special. Now, a, a juicy bit that I thought in that book was, and a great big decision was to whether you would go to America. Uh, you were the only one sort of called up to go and do the pilot yeah. in America. How, how did you come to that decision? How difficult was it? I mean, what I think what it is, it's, I'm not proud, I'm slightly ashamed, it is absolutely everyone has a price. And I, I genuinely didn't want to do it. It wasn't like I wasn't holding out saying I didn't want to do it because I knew they'd put the money up because I didn't know they would. But they, they put the money up and they kept putting it up and I kept saying no. And I came, no, look, it's not about the money. And I was genuinely arguing about the money, but there is a, then you realise there is a price because they offered so much money. I went, yes, <laughs> I'll do it naked, I don't care, cover me in... <laughs> Stick the stick the mask on permanently. Yeah. But but it never. It, it, wait, they didn't take it on, did they? You did the pilot, no. and then they didn't I take mean, it on. That I have to say was a relief for me. It was a heartbreaking for Rob and Doug, the writers and, and producers of it, because they put so much effort into it. But for me personally, it was just quite a big relief. Yeah, and, do, and doing the research, I found out from watching your your video the other night that the young ones had the same fate, and the IT crowd yeah. had yes. the same fate as yes. well. Yes, it's a common experience. Yes. Now, in in the book. Uh, the Man in the Rubber Mask, you talk at great length and great warmth uh, about the visual effects designer, uh, Peter Rag, yeah. who's sadly passed away just recently. I mean, what yes. impact did Peter have on the, on the show? I mean, it was, it was enormous and very uh, central to it, really. He was, he was such a part of the group. He was a very quiet, shy man with a great sense of humour. But he was just a wonderful character to have on the set all the time. So he, all the explosions and the special effects were, were down to him, the... Uh, the models uh, that he filmed, he had a Dalek in his office, he helped build the Daleks originally. So he'd been in the, in the industry a, lot, a long time. There's a fabulous photograph that he showed us 
uh, when he was a young man with a full head of hair, because he was very bald when we knew him, uh, kneeling on a, a miniature motorway with uh, uh, Lady Penelope's pink Rolls Royce, which he made. You know, we were just going, oh my God, you're a legend, it's amazing. You know, we were all just, it was so extraordinary. And his, his descriptions uh, when we were sitting on the set, and he'd come around very carefully. He was always very concerned for us when there was lots of explosions going on. And he'd sort of go, you know, there's um, be a few pops right in front of you, Robert, and then a big explosion at the back. Don't worry, I'll be fine. And then they had to go off, and it was horrendous. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, Danny and I did, did, didn't have to do comedy um, being blown over acting once. We were blown over. There was nothing you could do. You couldn't stop yourself. You didn't have to do sort of cod falling. We were absolutely blown across the set. They used compressed air cannons full of um, cork dust and bits of, uh, you know, plastic and stuff. And it looks amazing, but it does hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it is technically an explosion. <laughs> For this, this series as well, there's been a big thing on the forums and, and the fan sites, certainly, about going back to making the models and, you know, of the visual effects yes. and, you know, using that more back, like you say, to the, to the harder core, you know, the, the, previous, yeah. the previous series. Now... Let's talk about the, the head. You've mentioned it a couple of times there, the Crichton head. I mean, it, it's got better over the years, hasn't it? It is. I mean, it is a weird process. And the only people that I've... Who are, who, I mean, there's no way of understanding what the experience is like unless you've done it. And uh, interestingly, um, Timothy Spall, who's you know, a brilliant actor, has done full-face prosthetics. And when he was on the show, he, he was in Red Dwarf once. He was amazing to talk to because he really knew... What, and his, full, his prosthetics were much worse. He had a, a pig face on. And the only way he could drink when he had it on was if someone else fed a straw through his pig snout into his mouth. So, I mean, it must have been just horrendous. Uh, but he found it quite traumatic working with me because it really frightened him. You know, he'd got, he'd, he'd, I don't think he's going to be doing full-face prosthetics <laughs> again, I think it's fair to say. But it is an unusual experience because you do... From the point of view of performing, it's very... It's very good. I find it very easy. I, I, uh, it's not me. So it's kind of like an advanced form of puppetry in a way. It's like uh, when I go on stage in front of a, an audience in the rubber mask, then I'm not nervous because it's Crichton. It's not yeah. me. I'm behind that. I'm just operating the features. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in, in operating those features, you've, you've spoken at length before, I know, about learning the lines, Robin Doug's lines, and, yeah. the, and, the, and the scripts. And the scripts are so unique that it makes it almost impossible. It does it? make it very hard to learn, for me. Uh, and, and I'm particularly cursed by working with Craig Charles, who has a, a, a genuinely... Uh, photographic memory so he can read a script once literally read it once and he knows every line he knows all his lines but he knows everyone else's as well and it is an extraordinary ability and as he says he doesn't know how he does it he's not like some he's just born that way and uh, that is an absolute curse when if I've read the script 17,000 times I'm still <laughs> not quite sure of it but in the new series of Red Dwarf I do a couple of big long speeches in one take and I'm really proud so <laughs> but I had worn a small circle in my kitchen as I walked around going <laughs> Now, you've written and performed your own work up until uh, joining Red Dwarf. Was there ever any sort of frustration then at, at then becoming greatly recognised for, for performing other people's lines? Oh, no, not at all, no. I mean, it was actually always a, a, a huge... I felt hugely privileged to be given that opportunity. It was an amazing job. And I think, I think if, if I thought that Robin Doug's writing was a bit ropey and a bit rubbish, then it might, that might have made that eventually I got, you know, I didn't want to do it anymore. But, I mean, every time I read one of their scripts, I'm in awe. You know, they are extraordinary. They're such brilliant ideas. They both have a scientific background, interestingly. That's what they studied at university, and, and that comes through. But their sort of insights into human frailty, I think, are, 
are brilliant. And the, 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 I mean, the cruel thing, but the brilliant thing about the scripts is they're very original. They're, they're very original language they use. So it's re that which makes it hard to learn in a sense. And I've done sort of other job, other acting jobs with other people's writing, and I go, oh, blimey, I learned that really easily, because it's sort of essentially using common phraseology and, and cliches, and yeah, that's yeah, very. Yeah. And you've got those hooks straight away. You can learn it, but. Their script of murder, but I mean that's what really—it's really the, the the combination of the camaraderie of the crew of the cast in the in the show and the writing is what's kept me, you know, always keen to, to do it. Yeah, and then you sort of move move from there, uh, and I talk about Scrap Heap Challenge. When we interviewed John Mitchinson, who uh, is co-founder co of Unbound Books, we'll talk at a bit more in length later. He's the uh, the director of research for QI, and I put it to him that that was a non-job. That's just procrastination, you know, yes. just finding out facts. And I would say Scrap Heap Challenge looks to me like it's too much fun to be. It was. I was very lucky to get that job. I mean, it was uh, because it was a fascination of mine anyway, um, which is why I ended up being involved in it. It, you know, I'm a frustrated engineer. I mean, having a, a, a chronic disability with mathematics meant that getting into sort of slightly more advanced levels of engineering is very difficult. I'm quite a good kind of basic mechanic. I've, I've rebuilt things like gearboxes in Morris Miners and, and, you know, rebuilt steering assemblies and things. And that's quite simple because you don't have to measure anything. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else has already done that and worked it out and you just bolt it together. Uh, so I've always been fascinated by that. Uh, you know, my obsession as a child was Meccano, uh, you know, and where I would build, you know, really compli quite complicated machines. When I think back now, I would build quite complex stuff. So I was fascinated by that. So getting that chance to then see really clever engineers. I mean, some of the people we've had on Scrappy are barking mad and have unusual facial hair and some really disturbing body piercings, but... <laughs> but <laughs> A lot of them are just the most extraordinary men, and I mean, really talented people that, that just have the most incredible mind, the way they th think through a problem. So, I mean, it was, it was endlessly fascinating. I mean, I did it for 10 years as well, which is very unusual in TV land to do a, a show that lasts that long. So I've seen a lot of welding. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very good at, I'm very, I am absolutely rubbish welder. Uh, a, a very brilliant wel uh, welder from Doncaster called Spike gave me some welding lessons, and he's an extraordinary welder, and, and he, he took one look at what I'd done. I was really proud, and I had the mask on, and, went, and it made all the right noises and looked impressive. And then when I, when I stopped and lifted the mask up, he, he said, that looks like a dog pissing in snow. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. But, but gas axing, I'm really good at. I can cut metal in half with a gas axe. I am, I am I'm really good. So did you ever get involved with any of the teams? Did you ever sort of help them along? Or? Not really. I mean, the one time everyone dug in, we did a, a special in 2002 to commemorate the, the first flight, the Orville and Wilbur Wright, uh, we did in America. And so there were three teams, French, British and American, that built airplanes in, in, with period tools in period costume. And it was extraordinary. So all out of wood and string and canvas. But the, we, the three things that we had to use, the Civil Aviation Authority insisted that we use is modern... Uh, fabrics to cover the wings, uh, modern microlight engines and propellers, because apparently if you have a propeller spinning really fast and it's made out of, you know, twisted together bamboo, people die, apparently, because <laughs> bits fly off and chop them in half. So Health we had and to safety gone mad. But, so when we, when we covered the wings, this, they had two days to make them, and then it's ridiculous to, make, to build an airplane in two days. People don't do that, but we did. And so the, the job that I was given, which I was very good at, was ironing. So I, because I, uh, the material that you stretch on the wings is a, a fabric that goes tight when you iron it. So I was on the iron for many hours. I, did, I, I ironed acres of wings. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want this to turn into an engineer's loving, but I, I know we, we've got someone who tweeted in a question, who is an engineer? And he says, what were you most surprised by during the making of How Do They Do It? 
I mean, there was a lot of... I mean, I suppose in terms of sheer terrifying surprise was, was flying in a um, Red Bull aerobatic plane, because I do like flying. And I've been very lucky to fly in lots of different weird uh, machines uh, and helicopters and things in my uh, career. But the, and I looked at the Red Bull aeropatic plane and I went, oh, brilliant. It's one of those Red Bull aeropatic... I don't know how I was that stupid. <laughs> uh, and I don't get flight sick. I'm very lucky I don't get vomity and seasick or, or flight sick. Um, but that said, uh, when you go in a Red Bull aeropatic plane, and he said he was gentle, uh, <laughs> that he was very delicate the way he flew it. But you, we did... We, I think we pulled only 4.6G... That's how he described it. Now, 4.6 G is 4, so your body at that moment weighs 4.6 times more than normal, uh, is essentially what it means, and I fainted immediately. And when I came round, uh, this is an uh, early evening children's TV viewing, and obviously you're not meant to use profanity, and I only used profanity. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even use any joining words. There wasn't, there wasn't anything else. There was just constant swearing, because oh, I couldn't see when you... Uh, I didn't know about this, but when you black out from that, your vision is gone, so I could just see red, and I thought I was dead. I don't know what was going on. And, it, and, there, and there, there was cameras stuck in the cockpit, which is very, very small, and all you can see is this sort of tragic old bloke's head just nod down, like completely unconscious, then come back up, and then he, he going like that, and just swearing. And they had to really pixelate the, lot, the bottom half of the screen. And it's just basically, boop! It's just one constant thing. Excellent. Um, so we'll move on uh, to a, a bit of the writing now. And you were writing from an early age. Um, when, when was your first novel? Uh, well, I mean, I wrote, a, a, you know, a novel when I was, I think, about 12, uh, a detective uh, story. That was quite good. It would probably run to sort of 2,000 words, which when you're 12 is really long. That's good. That's good. very long. Yeah. A lot of patience. Uh, and I, I, I loved reading from a very early age, and I loved, and I wanted... I didn't know how you wrote. I mean, I think that's the... I think what's possibly better now is that there's a lot more kind of public knowledge of how writing works and how people write things, and there's a lot more outlets for it. I just had no idea how you wrote. I honestly sent my first manuscript, because I'd cycled past the, the office, to a map publisher, because it said publisher, and I took a note. I went, oh, right, I'm going to send them my manuscript. And they sent me a lovely letter, because they went, we, we quite enjoyed reading your novel. Um, but you know, we normally publish maps. You know, and I mean, just had no clue. I didn't know about agents and, and, and publishers and how you submit manuscript. I didn't even know a manuscript was this was like this was probably uh, three thousand words of of you know solidly typed in one long paragraph with appalling spelling because right? <laughs> i'd learned how to type on a manual typewriter so you know it was i had no I cl clue and actually the way i got into it was writing for the stage i mean that's when it suddenly clicked that i could write lines that like people say and then someone explained yeah that's called dialogue robert you know i mean i was really uh, i was barely educated i was thrown out of school quite young so <laughs> uh, so looking back at your first published book, The Reconstructed Heart, how, how did it feel to be published? We ask, we ask this of a lot of writers, and I, I always like asking the question, how did it feel to be published and when you get the book in your hand? Yeah, no, it, was, it was incredibly exciting, and it, but it was mixed with frustration. So it was one, a wonderful opportunity. That, it was a, a, a stage show I did called The Reconstructed so was the, the, It had numerous subtitles, that, but the stage show was the male response to feminism from 1970 to 1990. It was a, like a serious lecture with slides, and it had graphs in it, and one of the graphs was the amount of uh, wine a woman has to drink before she believes all men are bastards and that was gradually, <laughs> that gradually diminished from 1970 it was like three glasses down to like a sip in 1990 uh, so it, it had you know so it had sort of <laughs> comic elements to a sort of serious topic 
Uh, I mean, I basically came of age uh, during the, the explosion of feminism in the mid-70s, so it was very much about that, how, what, what are men supposed to do, you know, because whatever you do is wrong. Is, is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd, I'd like to also look at another book which I've not read and I'm going to seek out and look for, which is uh, Sold Out, which is uh, How You Survived a Year of Not Shopping. Now, that, mm. that to me sounds like paradise. I mean, yeah, how, yes. what, was the, what was the thinking I mean, the, behind the, that? The, 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 the thinking behind it was a publisher approaching me to write the book because actually when I didn't do the experience to in order to write a book. I mean, it was very much the other way around. And uh, I didn't particularly want to do it. And then they kind of, they talked me into it. Because, uh, I mean, when I, I wrote them an email and I said, what am I going to write? Look, day one, didn't buy anything. Because <laughs> that's essentially what happened. Uh, you know, there's, it, wasn't a, uh, uh, it wasn't a very, you know, an exciting year from that point of view. But it was a, it was a decision I came to when, uh, you, after doing Christmas shopping with my children, who were then still quite young. And I just felt, this is just wrong you know and I can't and I couldn't impose it on them I could, you know I didn't feel I was in a position to impose it on them and also I don't think I would have been allowed to impose it on them by my wife <laughs> but they it was interesting they did they did notice it and they both I think been affected by it I think they did sort of become aware of what I was talking about over the length of the year so I mean all I set myself a goal was that I won't buy anything other than food and medicine that's all I was allowed to buy for myself so the rest of the family I didn't you know whatever and so I didn't buy any clothes books newspapers magazines gizmos hard drives usb2 leads camera cards <laughs> just oh, you know some of the things were really easy socks let me tell you after a year and you don't buy any new socks you remember how you you darn my mum taught me how to darn so there's all those things come back that's essentially what the book was about that actually wait a minute my, and i called it making do originally because that's what my mother did, and that's what I grew up with. You make do. You've got that. Oh, is it, you know, you've got a pair of trousers with a hole in the back. You sew them up. You know, you patch them. So it was actually a, a reminder, effectively, of how we maybe should live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it yeah. kind of brought all that back. And uh, I, you know, I lived as a young till I started showing off on stage. I, 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 I sort of lived in designer poverty. You know, I come from a very comfortable middle class background. I had no reason to live the way I did, but I chose deliberately to shun that and not be a consumer and a, join the rat race, as it was called in those days. And, um, and it kind of brought a lot of that back, was, uh, was sort of reclaiming that and going, actually, that, there were some things I did when I was 17, 18, 19 that were stupid, criminal and wrong. But not everything. You know? <laughs> so it was kind of going, well, hang on, no, not everything I did then was really daft. There was some actually some really good ideas that need to be, I, I wanted to explore as a as an old bloke, you know. Well, looking also through your back catalogue, uh, there's a book called Sudden Wealth, which uh, is, is a book that means quite a bit to me. Is I started getting into reading by reading that book. I, you know, wow. I, I came to it a little late. And I'd bring it here for you tonight to, to sign, but I'd, I'd like you to do me a favour if possible now. Obviously, you're aware we're, we're filming. If you could just look into that camera and think, oh, yeah. say to Terry Hughes to give me that book back, please. <laughs> that would be tremendous. Terry, Terry Hughes, can you give him his book back? Sudden Wealth, yeah. Don't be a twat. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there was a sign on the door when you came in that said profane language, maybe. Yeah, you're mild. 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 Yeah, it's okay. Mild. I, it's okay. I don't think I need to make an apology for that. There's, and, a, there's uh, a great Americanism that uh, I learned when I was in that described me, apparently. Potty mouth. Apparently, that's what I've got. <laughs> You've got a potty mouth. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really trying not to have a potty mouth tonight. Well, you're raining it in superbly. Um, so this will be the last, last question now <laughs> before... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Came out, sorry. This will be the last question out, uh, just before we hear some more uh, music from Michael Reeve. And what, what sort of writer are you? Are you one who sits at 
a desk and just crams and crams and crams, or do you do it in bits and bobs? Do you do it around the house? Oh no, I do sit in the desk uh, and 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 turn everything off and sort of try and focus on it. Well, I focus on it, and I and I'm I get very lost in it and cause a lot of stress um, in my family uh, because you know someone's come in to tell me you know supper's ready or one of the children's cut their leg off and I'm still <laughs> writing. <laughs> the dog's exploded and killed the vicar. Get out! <laughs> what? What did you say? <laughs> so yes, I get I get very lost in it. So uh, yeah, I do. but I try and set. Uh, it's more it's more not setting a day. It's actually I have to sort of plan ahead because of the nature of my other work that I'm going. I'm not going to do anything in September and October, which is what I'm doing this year to write. So I've got time, and so I don't accept any other bookings in that time. And then on day one, enormous <laughs> amount of laundry and <laughs> tightening the washing line by four point three centimeters and. Sweeping the step to my office, and absolutely <laughs> making sure the papers are all ordered. Totally tidy desk. Yeah, there's a bit of that, but not too long. And they, because I actually get really excited to go for walks and think about it, and mm. you know, get into it. Yeah. And can you still get lost in a good book? You know, or do you sometimes think, oh, oh, that's a great introduction of a character? Or can you can you still lose yourself? Or are you, are you sometimes looking at style and, and other influences? I, I mean, I think I, I think I'm. I wish when I talk to other writers, and I'm not going to say proper writers, but when I talk to other writers, and you go, God, that is amazing because of the way they've constructed a sentence and I don't I, I've decided not not to worry about that to, that, that I just that the story for me and the is what drives me and, they, and the, in a sense the the idea behind the story is what kind of fires me on to try and understand a way of exploring that without being repetitive and boring and annoying and then look then one of the things I've done recently is read I always read my work out loud anyway because I find that's a good way for me to notice an obvious sort of mistake but the, the next step to that, which is what I've done with this book, is to listen to it. So I record what I read, listen to it back, and I've got a special set of old cushions in the corner of my office that I, that's called my writhing corner. I'm there like that, because I'm not allowed to stop it. I don't let myself, oh, that's... And I've got to take notes and then rewrite it and then, re, you know. So that's been a good lesson. Yeah, and you say there about ideas, and we'll come back after our short break for, for some music. Uh, there'll be, Robert will be reading from News from Gardenia, and then we'll talk about the ideas behind it. Um, so we'd like to introduce now Michael Reeve. Uh, <clears throat> this song is called When I Needed You. just need the world to slow down for a little while and help my heart heal so I know that somehow I'll be right again, that I'll be right again So take your time with me and don't rush away the lies you said to me. Don't hide from what is real, cause I'll remember this now. I'll remember this. So don't you say that I was the one who won't come through. When oh no, you. So I 
down my time It's a little harder every day Until my head clears oh, I've no certainty But I'll be waiting here For what else comes my way And throw away my love And I won't believe a single word you say Hold on for better days well, How much can I take Was holding on my mistake But don't you say that I was the one Who won't come through When all know you Direction I'm wondering if I'll find my own will make your stories up about me and push your sin on someone else I've given. Cause I just need the world to slow down for a little while. And help my heart heal So I know that somehow I'll be right again That I'll be right again but Don't you say that I was the one Who won't come through When I know you that I was the one who won't come through when I know you were not there when I needed you Michael Reed, ladies and gentlemen, he's brilliant, and I love his songs, and I'll just quickly do a quick plug for him, because he didn't want to do it, but I'm, I am going to be selling his CDs after <laughs> But uh, this is a double plug, obviously, because they will be next to my book. on a little table. I, We haven't got many of either, so don't feel pressured at all. I'm going to, this is an absolute first for me, I'm going to read from my book on an iPad. <laughs> Because one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to, um, uh, was to do a, a, a book that was uh, an, an audio book, an e-book, and a paper book, uh, like, uh, you know, like a proper book, like in, on paper, like they used to do in the olden days. But it's quite exciting when I saw it on, uh, on, uh, on an iPad, because it looks lovely. It looks like a book. <laughs> The, I will do a very quick explanation. The book is an uh, uh, unashamedly utopian science fiction story set 200 years in the future in this country, which in 200 years' time in my book is called Gardenia. It is uh, a very different world to the world we know now, and uh, a, a character from our era goes there 
and uh, if it was in Red Dwarf, he'd go through some wibbly-wobbly space sci-fi smeg. Uh, so you don't need to know how he gets there, but he gets there, and he gets there in uh, an aeroplane that I saw recently uh, that exists in real life. It's an electric uh, two-seater monoplane called the Unique, and this, is, this part of the story takes place in that. This is a battery-powered electric plane that actually, interestingly, flies further and longer than a petrol-powered one. Uh, which is against a lot of people's assumptions. Uh, and it's also very quiet, because it doesn't have a great big noisy engine. Uh, so the, this scene takes place when uh, uh, the uh, protagonist is getting used to the new world that he's entered. And he's uh, flying, which is going to be very obvious now, I realize, in the first sentence. <laughs> in fact, in the second word. So I'll shut up describing it, and I'll just read some. We flew due south for some time. <laughs> didn't need to say flying, did I? Over endless forest, broken only by the occasional small field, neatly planted with what could have been vegetables or ground fruits. There was the odd square of oil seed, an occasional field of what could have been wheat or barley. There were no towns, just houses dotted about here and there, and of course many more glass houses. At one point we flew over something that was a recognizable street, with rows of old houses either side of gardens. That's Burford, said William. You may recognize that should explain that he's flying with a, a very old gentleman. He's 136 years old, uh, called William. Should have said that before. And I knew a 92-year-old, let me just quickly explain who this is based on, who <laughs> had a wonderful overbite, a little bit like uh, Tony Benn. And he, he was get very, very excited about engineering projects. So he spoke a little like that. So that's really where William came from. But I might not do that voice all the time, because it could be annoying. <laughs> I'd been for a pub lunch in Burford once with Beth, and I'd done an exploratory bike ride around Kingham. It was vaguely familiar except for the absence of the traffic jugging up the hill between the houses. No road now, just gardens. After a few minutes or so, batteries still at 100%, I saw the sun glint off a river in the distance. Ah, Kelmscott and old Father Thames, said William. Let us turn east and follow it. There is much to see along its banks. I did as William suggested and followed the river's meandering path. The water was occasionally obscured by large trees, but following its general direction was easy. I was concerned about landing by this time. We'd been flying for close to 40 minutes. If the old fellow was caught short, there wasn't much I could do about it. How are you bearing up, William? I asked. I'm having the most wonderful time, he said without looking at me. He was staring at the ground. I'm just a little concerned about landing somewhere if you need, you know, if there's a call of nature. Well, the only place I know we can land is in your field. William turned at me and smiled. Don't fret, he said. I'm fine. I'm having such a wonderful time. The last thing I need to have is a wee-wee. <laughs> a wee-wee. So after 200 years of massive cultural and technological change, people still called taking a piss having a wee-wee. <laughs> after passing over Newbridge, where the wind rush meets the Thames, another landmark I recognized, we followed the river past Oxford again, with William pointing out various communities along the way. No big urban development, just a series of houses surrounded by more trees. It was only when we passed over the bridge at Henley, again a landmark I could recognize, that I realized we'd already passed Reading, except there was no Reading, just a few farms. Beyond the bridge, I saw some strange-looking buildings on the bank of the river. What are those, I asked William, pointing to the structures. Heat extractors, said William. They extract the natural occurring heat from the river and turn it into energy. There are many of them along the Thames. Of course, from that moment on, I noticed these little buildings again and again. 
I was very relaxed. The unique essentially flew itself on autopilot, and I merely adjusted the direction every now and then in a lazy attempt to follow the river. After another minute, something ahead caught my eye. I was vaguely scanning the horizon when my eyes just stopped, transfixed by what was before me. At first, the four lines made no sense to me, just four vertical lines in the sky, stretching from the land horizon into the misty blue. These thin lines were directly in our path, and it was only when I saw an object rising up one of the lines that I started to blink. What in heaven's name is that? I asked as the object continued to rise up one of the lines. As I was speaking, another appeared out of the misty blue and descended at much the same graceful speed. That, my dear fellow, is Heathrow. That is what we've come to see. As we got closer to the lines, another object started climbing up another line, a small dark box-like shape. What is it? I asked. I just can't work it out. Pods, said William. The ones that look like jewels or maybe tears, they are passenger pods. The cuboid ones are for transporting goods, specialist goods or medicine, sometimes raw materials. I looked up as high as I could. Way, way above us, a small speck on one of the lines disappeared into the blue. Blimey, William, this is utterly breathtaking. Where are they going? William turned to me and smiled. They go into space, Gavin. They go out into space. Seriously, I gasped. Oh, yes, once they have reached the required altitude, they essentially stay motionless while the Earth turns. When they reach their destination, they latch onto another line and then descend. It's how we travel long distances. Oh, my Lord, I said, trying not to swear. What are the lines attached to, like solar kites? Oh, goodness me, no, said William. No, something much larger. They are attached to geostationary satellites located about 160 kilometers above us. Wait, wait, I interrupted, trying to take all this information in. Satellites? So there's a satellite with a bit of string hanging from it, and the boxes climb up the string. But how did the satellite get there, like the first one? Well, before I was born, I'm not exactly sure when, you'd have to ask Paula. A very substantial rocket was sent up which carried the first tether satellite. As far as I recall, this then sent another tether back to Earth, and from then on, the transportation of machines, support systems, and people to work on the systems was much simplified. Now any new satellite is built on the ground in various parts, then transported into position. The various parts are constructed into a hole, and another line is dropped to the Earth, and so on. So how many are there, I mean, around the world? Oh, I, I've no idea. I, I would say a few hundred. We were soon close enough to see some detail of the objects crawling up the tether. The more modular shape that was in front of me was moving upwards at a gentle pace. It was soon overtaken by a slightly more cuboid shape going up one of the other lines. That was climbing into the sky at about the same speed as a rocket, i.e. very bloody fast. Just extraordinary, I said, staring in awe. The lines are around 150 kilometers long, as I recall, said William. They just crawl up the tethers. The pods do have tiny hydrogen propulsion systems to steer themselves in zero gravity. You'll have to add your name to the waiting list. Have a trip somewhere. Fuck me, I spouted. <laughs> then glanced at William, a little shamefaced. Sorry, he was smiling at me. I thought you'd like it. You see, Gavin, we no longer need rockets to break the surly bonds of Earth. Wow, I said, finally taking my eyes off the spectacle in front of me. Do you know who said that? Said what, said William? The break the surly bonds of earth thing. I have no idea. I must have heard it somewhere. It's quite poetic, isn't it? Ronald Reagan, I said. He said it after a terrible rocket disaster. Oh, goodness, was he a poet? I laughed. No, William, he wasn't a poet. Thank you.
Now, thanks for that, Robert. This is my copy of News from Gardenia, significant in that certainly in the last year it's the first book I've paid for. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Yeah. And it has my, has my name in the back. It does have your name in the back. Um, so let's talk very quickly there about uh, Unbound mm -hmm. and the publishing and why you chose to go with Unbound Publishers. It's a new style of publishing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I did want to try. I mean, I think initially when I was first thinking about the book and, and because I had a lot of experience of doing effectively television programs completely outside the, 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 the traditional broadcasting network uh, through using the internet, a slightly different model in that you don't get paid to do it. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so I knew there was problems there and I thought, well, I really want to try and do this with books. And it wasn't so much that I'd had uh, bad, anything but bad experiences with traditional publishing, but uh, I've had very good experiences, but it was, it was, there's some kind of extra excitement, an extra kind of buzz you get from uh, trying to, to launch a, a book completely independently and it's now very possible to do I mean it's and you know while accepting that I'm in a lucky position having a public profile that means that there will be some people who'll go oh he's a bit of an old bore but I'll have a go you know I'll risk it as opposed to a completely unknown writer but and, and it was as I was going through that process and investigating how to put a book on Amazon and and then I was going to print some and then post them out in envelopes, it would have been a disaster. Every, you know, <laughs> I finally realized that distribution is, is quite a complicated and skilled and time-consuming occupation. And it was around that time that Unbound just sort of appeared out of the mist, and they'd literally just launched it. Um, I think I, I may have heard it, uh, about it originally from Terry Jones, who did the very, f I think their first book was Terry Jones' uh, book. And I'd met him a few times and we were talking about publishing and writing and books and things. And, and so it just immediately clicked. And as soon as I met John, I, you know, I went, that, I'll do anything. <laughs> so whatever it takes, you know, because it was such a brilliant idea. And it, it was what I had thought about doing but had no technical abilities to work out how to have my own web page where you could support a book in a kind of crowdsourced, crowdfunded yeah. way. So yeah, I mean, it just, just to, solved all those problems. To give a bit of background there, the, the Unbound books is, is you, you buy this. I paid £25 before I'd, I'd, I'd even... Well, before I'd written it. it. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you do get a lot. You do get access to things like the, what they call the Writer's Shed. What's yes. the Writer's Shed? Well, the Writer's Shed, if only I had used it more. I mean, it, unfortunately, the timing worked so that when... So the Writer's Shed is an, uh, an area of, of the website that you can only go to if you've, uh, if you've supported the book. And, it's, you know, and the idea is that you can interact with the writer as he's working on the book. And by the time that my book was on the site and the Writer's Shed was going, and I did put some stuff on it, I was in the middle of Red Dwarf. And that meant that I didn't even have half a brain to, <laughs> to yeah, log into the Writer's Shed. So that was a slight frustration. If I do it again with them, I will be obsessively doing stuff on the writer's show because it's a great way to kind of you know sort out ideas i'd like to post chapters on it and say this bit does this character work is it you know i mean because what you're actually dealing with is potentially sort of one percent of your readership in if it if the book is successful so it's not like you're giving it you're spoiling it you know and then it's, it's taken on from there then isn't it, it goes from unbound books to a publisher so it will be available in the shops in it the, will be, in the, yeah in the, so it's fabers are doing all the, the distribution and it'll be in bookshops and it'll be on amazon and and you know it'll be it'll be i mean in six months no one will know that it was ever not a normal book you know <laughs> so it'll be on kindle and ebooks and all that stuff and the audiobook as well is the other thing that yeah sure so let's look at what's inside the book it's a book about ideas and it was inspired by by william morris uh, for those of us including myself who don't 
know so much about William. Well, you tell us, tell us what I mean, happened. William Morris was, uh, he wrote a book in 1890 called News from Nowhere, uh, which I read when I was somewhere in my late teens, early 20s, which is, again, an absolutely unapologetically utopian vision of, unfortunately, 1980. And uh, he really, really got it wrong. Um, uh, it's just staggering how, how wrong he got it, and, uh, which is one of the reasons I set my book 200 years in the future. I wasn't going to risk 100, <laughs> uh, uh, just in case somebody might be able to read it in 100 years and just go, what a twat. Um, uh, but it was a, he was a, uh, an extraordinary man. I mean, a lot of people know him for his wallpaper. He, he designed, he was a very, he was an arts and crafts, uh, the kind of height of the Industrial Revolution, he was going, hang on a minute, this isn't the right thing to do. People need to love what they do and love their work and make things. And so he was very much part of that movement. He was a kind of uh, early socialist in some ways. I think they did use words like that then. Um, he had a, a quite a, a complicated personal life, um, he, and he was very much involved with the pre-Raphaelite movement and the, those artists and all those. Uh, there's one or two famous paintings of staggeringly beautiful red-haired women who he was married to one of them, but she shagged about a bit, to be honest, uh, in, to use modern parlance. Um, uh, but he was a, a wonderful uh, thinker and writer, and, uh, and News From Nowhere is an extraordinarily fascinating book, really more about um, how society is structured uh, rather than technology or, or anything like that. So it's very, very... It was very appropriate and, I think, popular in the 1970s when there was a sort of huge rejection of mass production and all there's a lot of people kind of going no we're not going to live like that man we're going to like pull our own hair back and like live naturally the kind of early sort of neil hippiness of boiling lentils there was a kind of really genuine sort of move towards finding ways uh, gentle ways of living with the world which i think are very relevant and have have come back to remind us that that was probably not such a stupid idea mm. and it's it's your book, News from Guardian, is, is unashamedly positive and looking what happens when we get it right. Yes, yeah. And, and do you think it's, it's inevitable that we, we should get it right? Surely it's a survival instinct of, of the human race to, to, to do what happens here. I mean, I would hope so. And I think it, was, it certainly started out as an absolute direct reaction to the kind of waves of, of dystopian fiction, both in, in writing but also in films. It's, you know, if there's a film about the future... It's, it's always the world's gone mad and people are killing each other and the zombies have taken over and there's an asteroid going to come and kill us and everybody's horrible and it's a fascist state and the machines rule everything and we're just, you know, and you just go, yeah, all right, come up with something. You know, The Matrix, Mad Max, there's, there's so many of them. The Book of Eli I went to see with my son and I went, oh, for God's sake, not another book where he's got to get to the other side of America with a gun. <laughs> You know, clever and wonderful acting, and but you know, and brilliantly made. But it's always gangs of marauding loons with guns and flaming jeeps, and oh, I don't know. It just got a bit tedious, and I just thought, well, I don't, I'd love to go and see a film where Tom Cruise goes into the future and and everybody's really nice, and, they <laughs> and they're all right, and there's no secret, vicious underground, you know, coven of controlling freakish fascists that want to murder everybody. It's actually quite nice, and everybody gets on. So really, that was the essential gist of it. And actually, in, it is that thing, I think, that, you, you, that the old differentiation between left and right does, since the Cold War, the end of the Cold War and the collapse of all that stuff, and you then go, I think it splits down into people who think everyone is basically essentially horrible and you want to build a fence around your house and keep them out because they're all awful and weird and foreign, or everyone's basically all right and there's one or two really nasty people in the world but really only one or two. Most people are fairly all right, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's um, the gist, and I think I'm on that side. You know. And 
you bring up the one or two people. I, I think someone that I, 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 we'll see how this goes. Um, this uh, was taken from your book, Sold Out, page 152. <laughs> um, anything oh, that Jeremy Clarkson uh, <laughs> hates. That much has got to be a good thing. I make a point of loving all the things he hates. I use him as a moral compass. Yeah. He's a very useful man. He's essential. Now, in <laughs> News from Gardenia, it doesn't take very long at all. Page nine. I headed I north to start giving me the opportunity to fly deliberately low over Jeremy Clarkson's house. <laughs> he starts his journey from Enstone Airfield, which Jeremy Clarkson's property backs onto. So, Top Gear broke down their, their electric cars uh, just outside our doors yeah. uh, here now. And there was a, a lot of controversy at the time about whether that was a fair judgment of an electric car. I mean, what's your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it, it, was absolutely, uh, it was absolutely fair in the sense that it was Top Gear doing it, so it was exactly what everyone would have expected. Um, I mean, the, the only unfortunate thing from, from their point of view is that, as in most modern cars now, but particularly the Nissan Leaf and the Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi that they were driving that day, have very sophisticated onboard computers which record every single, like, not, not just like where you've gone, but where the throttle position is <laughs> as you're moving. I mean, it records every single thing that you do. And so, of course, they'd recorded, uh, Nissan had a record of exactly what they'd done. So they'd been driving the car around in a circle uh, outside Lincoln for, a couple of, uh, I think, an hour and a half to, to get the batteries low enough so that when they drove in, it would run out, which it's fine because it's television and it's fake. You know, when we're in Red Dwarf, we're not actually in space. Uh, I've met some fans, particularly in America, who would find that shocking. But it is true. We don't have a gravity machine that keeps us on the floor. But so in that sense, it's fine. I mean, the the slightly dubious thing is, I mean, the thing that worries me the most about Top Gear, I think, of all, is that the TV show is a BBC production. It's funded by the licensed payers, and it's funny. I watch it. I think they're very funny. Uh, The Top Gear Live which is when they do huge uh, 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 arena shows, is sponsored by Shell, which is fine because they're a big oil company and they drive cars. But I worry that there's undue influence and it's not acknowledged. And it's when things aren't acknowledged. If, if, if Jeremy Clarkson went on stage at the live shows and said, we're sponsored by Shell, we love petrol. <laughs> and we're very proud that they've given us seriously large amounts of money to do these shows, that would be fine. I, would, I have no argument, but it's kind of not acknowledged, and that's what's dodgy. So therefore, I suspect the bias, where the bias is coming from in their opinion. I mean, and I think what's also interesting is that they are shifting. I mean, from the, they did a review of the Tesla a few years ago that was a debacle of lies and deceit and, um, and uh, you know, a, an absolute disaster, a very upsetting for the people at Tesla. And, and they went to enormous lengths. He went to, he was like bludgeoning that these cars are rubbish. And now he's actually saying these cars are the future. Yeah. <laughs> he's understood that, you know, we're going, to, we're going to do this thing that's called running out of fossil fuel. Yeah. Uh, not so, now, not next week, but, you know, at yeah, some yeah, very point. Very soon, and we're just not going to have a, a, a choice no. uh, there. But I mean, electric cars, I mean, why, why even you know, be a support or, or go for those? Why, why not just sort of go against the car at all? Do you have a vision of uh, different transport systems? Absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that once you sit... I, I was a petrol head without any question, and I, and I had tests of electric cars a few years ago, and this is purely through Scrappy, but it was through knowing people that were involved in that world. And when I went in an electric car that went much faster, uh, 0-60, to 60, than a Ferrari or a Porsche or an American muscle car. We're talking 0 to 60 in uh, 2.8 seconds, which is like being fired out of a gun. And there's no noise. It's the most extraordinary experience. And I went, those old cars are rubbish. And they suddenly, they, it dates them. I mean, it's that, it's that extraordinary thing where you go, hang on a minute, the piston engine is a, is a, 
steam age technology. You know, it is a, you know. And so it's very, very old technology that we're completely locked into. So not only does the electric car in some ways break that paradigm and it is a disruptive technology, it also then makes you immediately question about ownership. And I think one of the key things that I've learned in the last few years is that at this very moment that we're all sitting in this room, 90% of the world's cars that are functioning, that are able to be driven at this moment, 90% of them are sitting still doing nothing. It's this monstrous, ludicrous, absurd waste of a brilliant, fantastic engineering resource. Why does it work like that? And it makes you question those things, what, you know, that whole paradigm. And, and what is interesting is I got that information from automotive manufacturers. And they know it's being questioned, and they're beginning to wonder, wait a minute, this, isn't, this doesn't work. It's unsustainable. Somebody once asked a question when I was with someone from a, a, a car manufacturer. Uh, as a criticism of electric cars, there isn't enough lithium to make enough, all these electric cars. We can't replace it. And the, the guy said, there isn't enough steel. There isn't <laughs> enough rubber. Not everyone in the world can have a car. And what's really changing the whole picture is China and India that there's these two huge new markets. I mean, China, massive new market. Uh, and there isn't enough stuff to make cars so that everyone in China can have a car. It doesn't matter. We'd have to, even if we gave them all our cars, so we had no cars anywhere else in the rest of the world, there still isn't enough for China. So something has got to change. And it, it, when something has got to change, it changes very fast. Last question now, because we're running out of time. We could be here all night, I'm sure. Of all the things from the CV, the, the writer, actor, comedian, performer, is there anything left? Or what would you like to do? What would you... What would you... I, I mean, it, it is writing. It's, writing is the thing I've always wanted to do and always sort of long for that time. And that's what you want. And, uh, you know, that's what I've learned. Is that, and that's one of the things I put in the book, is the, the, one of the things that they have in Gardenia is time. And that's, uh, we're very time-starved because of the manic nature of our lives. And, it's, and, it's, and on those few moments I've experienced, more so as an adult now, is that um, I've got nothing to do today. <laughs> I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to go in a car. I don't have to rush anywhere. That is a huge luxury. And it's, if, essentially, it's free. So that, I mean, I, f I feel time to sit and write a bit and potter about in the garden is, is you know, that's my massive ambition. <laughs> it's it's fairly low. I know it seems achievable. And uh, thank you so much tonight. Robert Llewellyn. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this special live edition of The Reading Room. Our next podcast will be available in early July. To find out more about The Reading Room and to listen to our previous shows online, visit our website readingroom.podbean.com. <laughs>